<laughs> down here on the floor. Good morning, everyone. Hope everybody is doing well. Welcome to the Great Church Sabbath edition. <laughs> Thank you for being out here on Saturday morning, uh, kicking off our two-day revival slash gospel meeting. The gospel is the theme for those of us that are in Christ. Hopefully, revival to some degree or another will be the result. For those that are not yet in Christ, we hope that obedience to the gospel is the result. And uh, so. Uh, two days of wonderfulness. I know you're going to be excited to hear our speaker. First of all, a couple of announcements. Um, of course, we, are, uh, we will have two sessions today. Uh, there will be, uh, uh, for those that are interested in joining, our Hispanic brethren are hosting a lunch at um, the Brito's house, and I do believe they've asked folks to bring something if you're coming. That's an if you want to, you don't have to. We will have a potluck after uh, worship and class tomorrow, doing the church eat church thing, so don't forget that. Um, other announcements that are here will be mentioned uh, tomorrow, Lord willing, um, but um, David wrote Prayers have been requested for Steve Mayers, uh, the younger brother of Enola Gore and cousin of Ray Newman. He is under hospice care right now and is very critical, so we've been asked to remember Steve Mayers in our prayers. Uh, brother David will have a prayer in just a moment. Brother Josh is going to sing some songs. Uh, we'll have a couple of songs and then our lesson, and we will have an invitation song at the end of this session and then a break. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce our speaker, and then I'm going to get out of the way and let things roll. Uh, we have with us Brother Chuck Monan today, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, I first heard Chuck at a better preaching conference hosted by the Jenkins Institute, and uh, while I was there attending that, trying to become a better preacher, I don't know how much that's been effective, but I'm still working on it. But um, I was listening to his preaching, and I said to myself, Self, I think the folks at Laverne will be blessed by hearing this brother's preaching. So I approached him and asked him if he uh, would be willing uh, at some point in the future to come do a gospel meeting at Laverne, and he was uh, agreeable to that. So we arranged the terms, and now that date is finally here. I know you're going to be blessed by his preaching today and tomorrow. And uh, so I'm glad you're here and spread the word tomorrow, not only to our folks, but to people that you know and your family and in your uh, work sphere and your friend sphere and your neighborhood and whatever and tell them we have got a really, really great uh, guest gospel preacher with us and they need to come hear what uh, he has to say from the Lord. So Chuck Monan uh, is in his fourth decade of preaching. He has served congregations in Michigan, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. Currently, he is uh, preaching for the Pinnacle Church of Christ in Little Rock, which is a recent uh, church plant, about five years old, and uh, they're doing exceedingly well and blessed in, this, in Rock, uh, Little Rock. Uh, just another one of the great examples of what the Lord is doing right now. While the world is saying we're in a post-Christian era, all over the place, churches are reviving and growing and showing the folks that there is no such thing as a post-Christian era. And I'm just very excited about that. He also can be heard weekly on 103.7 FM if you're in the Little Rock area as the pigskin preacher. All right, the pigskin preacher. So we got the pigskin preacher with us today here at the Great Church. And uh, so I will now turn this over to Brother Josh. 
Let's open our Bibles together to Luke chapter 10. Glad to see all of you today. It's uh, always good when brothers and sisters come out, especially on a Saturday. We're going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow, but uh, as Josh alluded to in his remarks, uh, at a time when fewer and fewer people are turning out to worship, to give honor and praise and glory to God, our Father and our King, it's always a great thing to be together with the Lord's people who still prioritize that. We know that um, statistics are a little bit misleading sometimes. As uh, fewer and fewer are going, we still see more and more giving their lives to the Lord Amen. and being dedicated to His service, and we're glad about the good things that go on here at Laverne. I've heard several things about this congregation, about your good preacher, and I'm thankful to be here for today and tomorrow as we get down to brass tacks and talk about the Word of God. In Luke chapter 10, there is an exchange that takes place between Jesus and the lawyer. And it remains instructive for us today. It begins in verse 25, and therein the Bible reads, Behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, pass by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go... And do likewise. It's never a good idea to ask probing questions to Jesus, especially when you know the answer to said question. But when this fellow wants to justify himself and he asks, and who is my neighbor? Well, he knew who his neighbor was. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of those things. You see, we know what we're supposed to do. We just don't always want to do it. In 1 John chapter 4, Verses 7 through 21. The aged apostle pontificates on love. We won't read the entire exchange, but here's what matters of that. John says, how can you claim to love God whom you have not seen and not love your brother whom you have seen? Well, that's one of those questions, again, it's just better off to leave it alone because you don't want to dig and peel back the layers of the onion. We know what to do. 
We just don't always want to do it. So all this brings up a question. Are we missing, perhaps, a key component necessary in loving our neighbor? Now, I'm not talking about loving our neighbor the way the world feels that way. You know, we feel some kind of warm, fuzzy, amorphous, good feeling toward people. That's not love. That's a lot of other things, but it's not necessarily love. Love is doing what the Good Samaritan did, of reaching out and inconveniencing yourself for somebody that you don't even know. And if you did know them, it might turn out you might not even like them that much. Okay, that's love. It's not, oh, I feel, you know, warmly toward you. Well, you know, we feel warmly toward, you know, little baby puppies and ice cream and a lot of things, but that's not really love. There is something, in my estimation, that would help us be more effective in loving our neighbors if we would simply practice it. And here's what it is. It's gratitude. It's being thankful. We live in a world of ingrates. You do good things for people and they don't even acknowledge it. Now, this might date me a little bit, but when I let somebody in in traffic who is just sitting there and they're, they're poor and helpless and they want to get in and nobody's letting them in, I, a native-born Yankee, yeah, I meant that. I let them in. And then you know what they do half of the time? Nothing. Now, look, if you don't get anything out of this weekend, you get this out of this weekend. When somebody lets you in, you give them a wave. Just give them a wave. That's all you got to do. You're not out anything. But we live in a world where people get let in in traffic and they don't give out a wave. Well, because they're not grateful. Here's something that was said by Dr. Robert Emmons, professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis. Grateful living is possible only when we realize that other people and agents do things for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Gratitude emerges from two stages of information processing, affirmation and recognition. We affirm the good and credit others with bringing it about. In gratitude, we recognize that the source of goodness is outside of ourselves. Amen. That is a really, really interesting statement. The source of gratitude, the source of goodness, if you will, is outside of ourselves. It's not something that we manufactured. It's not something that we created. In Luke chapter 17... There's a fascinating exchange beginning in verse 11 that takes place. And, and you can almost just see, remember this. Of all the things that Jesus did, not all the books in the world would be big enough to contain all of those things. Now, that's hyperbole. The man only lived 33 years. So, yeah, you could have chronicled every single thing that he did. What that's a way of saying is Jesus did a lot and the Bible contains just a very little. So the little that the Bible records is significant. And one of the things that Luke records is this exchange in Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, 
have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Remember that phrase that Emmon said, in gratitude we recognize that the source of goodness is outside of ourselves. The source of goodness for most everything that happens to you and to me is God. Okay, that God deserves all of our gratitude. And yet at the same time, if we're going to succeed in loving others whom we have seen, it might help us if we develop an attitude of gratitude instead of thinking that people owe us or I'm entitled to this or of course you should do this for me. And recognizing the good things that others do, it puts us in a more advantageous position to be kind to them and to love them and to serve them. Bottom line is we really can't love people if we're not thankful for them and for the role they play in our lives and in the world. In Paul's 13 letters, some 40 times, he mentions giving thanks in those letters. He's always saying something like this in Philippians 1 and verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You see, when we're grateful for people, then we're in the position to love them. Why do we struggle sometimes in loving our neighbors? Because we're not really thankful for them. And we're not grateful for the things that they do. But when we are grateful for the things that they do, when we do recognize the role that they play in our lives and in the world, it becomes much easier to love them. I think that there's something that we've been missing here. I was recognizing this a few years ago, about three years ago, I guess it was, when I read a book called Thanks a Thousand by A.J. Jacobs. Now, Jacobs is an interesting character. He's Jewish, but as that usually means today, especially in America, he's not particularly religious. He says, uh, my family's Jewish religiously like the Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant. You know, it's kind of, but not really. You know, one of those things. Then again, you know, I don't mean to be a snob. Do I eat the all-you-can-eat salad and the breadsticks? Yes, with great gusto. But, you know, it is what it is. Olive Garden wouldn't make a deal. Uh, it wouldn't make a, a go in Rome, for instance. It's just kind of American Italian. But Jacob says in several of his books, I think I'm missing something by not having that connection to God. And he had at least the good sense uh, to mention in this book, Thanks a Thousand, that he has been largely living a life that's been devoid of gratitude. Let me share you, uh, with you what he says in the introduction of this book. He says, it's a Tuesday morning, and I'm in the presence of one of the most mind-boggling accomplishments in human history. This thing is so astonishing and its complexity and scope, it makes the Panama Canal look like a third grader's craft project. This marvel I see before me is the result of thousands of human beings collaborating across dozens of countries. 
It took the combined labor of artists, chemists, politicians, mechanics, biologists, miners, packagers, smugglers, and goat herds. It required airplanes, boats, trucks, motorcycles, vans, pallets, and shoulders. It needed hundreds of materials, steel, wood, nitrogen, rubber, silicon, ultraviolet light, explosives, and bat guano. I know it's too soon after breakfast. It has caused great joy, but also great poverty and oppression. It is my morning cup of coffee. And I'm grateful for it. Really, really grateful. It wasn't always so. I tend to think, take things for granted. For most of my life, I rarely thought about my coffee unless it spilled on my jacket or scalded the roof of my mouth. But these last few months have forced me to change that. Earlier this year, in an attempt to battle my default mental state, which is generalized annoyance and impatience, I undertook a deceptively simple quest. I pledged to thank every single person who made my cup of coffee possible. I resolved to thank the barista, the farmer who grew the beans, and all those in between. It turned out to be a lot of thank yous. My gratitude quest has taken me across time zones, up and down the social ladder. It's made me rethink everything from globalism to beavers, from hugs to fonts, from light bulbs to ancient Rome. It's affected my politics, my worldview, and my palate. It has made me feel delight, wonder, guilt, depression, and of course, a whole bunch of caffeine jitters. Now, how did this quest get started? Well, I've been an admirer of gratitude for several years. It's not an emotion that comes naturally to me. My innate disposition is moderately grumpy, more Larry David than Tom Hanks. But I've read enough about gratitude to know that it is one of the keys to a life well lived. Perhaps, as Cicero says... It is even the chief of virtues. According to the research, gratitude's psychological benefits are legion. It can lift depression, help you sleep, improve your diet, and make you more likely to exercise. Heart patients recover more quickly when they keep a gratitude journal. A recent study showed gratitude causes people to be even more generous and kinder to strangers. Another study summarized in Scientific American finds that gratitude, listen to this, is the best single predictor of well-being and good relationships, beating out 24 other impressive traits such as hope, love, and creativity. As the Benedictine monk David Steinder Rast says, happiness does not lead to gratitude. Gratitude leads to happiness. Now, that's probably more than you wanted to know about coffee, but hey, you invited me here and I'm talking, so here's what you're going to get. For the next few minutes, I want to just give you an overview of this book, recognizing when I recommend books, most people, yeah, yeah, it sounds great, and then they go watch a football game, they never read it. This is what he says in this, and there's a method to the madness, so stay with me for the next few minutes. Here's what he breaks this book down in his quest to thank all the people that are making his life better by providing his coffee. In chapter one, he deals with the barista and the taster. The barista, of course, is that person at Starbucks and elsewhere that 
gets the coffee to you. This lovely lady is Chung Lee, and she was the barista for Jacobs at his New York City coffee shop. Her parents are Korean. She's Korean. In fact, they immigrated here from Korea. And he did something that was unusual when he started going in and getting his coffee. He looked at her, and he talked to her, and he got to know her, and he started asking questions about her, and he found out about her life and about her family's life. And they became friends. In fact, she said this to him. She said, you're kind of unusual. And he said, well, what do you mean? What's unusual about me? She said, you look at me and you talk to me. She said, most of the people just take the coffee and they go on and don't think anything. I read that and I thought, isn't that just the way it is most of the time? Somebody hands you something, you just take it. Well, that's their job. Yeah, it's their job, but don't all of us, when we do our job, like to be acknowledged? Don't we like to be recognized as human beings created in the image of God? Well, guess what? He tells the barista, thanks for serving me my coffee. Thanks for making things just a little bit better today. In chapter 2, he deals with the cup makers, the people making the coffee cup. Thanks for stopping the coffee from spilling on me in my lap. Boy, isn't that just the way it is, okay? Now, you don't think much about this, but, but here's something you need to know. This... You thought I had a dip in this morning when I put this in here. I know you did, but no, I, I don't do that. But uh, anyway, this is a coffee lid, but there has been great advances in coffee lid technology. Now, this is a simple Dixie cup. The Cadillac of coffee lids are the Viora uh, lids made by Doug Fleming and his company. But here's the thing. It affects how the coffee tastes. It affects how the coffee comes out. And it's always amazing to me that these things work as well as they do. Well, Jacob's decided that since so much thought and design has gone into this, he visited the people at the factories that made the lids. And he went in there and he looked at the guy and he said, I want to thank you for making this coffee lid. And the guy's like, well, you're welcome, I guess. But he's like, what kind of weirdo is this? Okay, you know, but, but here's the point. Okay, who would think to give thanks for a coffee lid? Well, you know, almost every morning... I start off with a hot coffee, and then I go to iced coffee with Dunkin' or Starbucks. I got the app on my phone, okay? Those things never spill. They work. I'm always impressed when somebody does their job well enough that it works, okay? Whoever that is, stop and give thanks to that person. Here's chapter 3, the roasters. Thanks for taking the heat for me. You ever roasted coffee beans? I've done this a couple of times. I got a friend that owns a, an industrial-sized roaster, huge huge thing. They don't just kick it up to 350 degrees and then go sit down and do the crossword puzzle. You got to go ahead and you got to you got to write down all of the temperature changes and for two minutes it goes at this and then at two minutes it goes for that. It's really complicated and I'll tell you the other thing it's really hot. You stand over this thing and you got sweat just dripping off of you but when you had that coffee somebody took the time to roast those beans. And if they hadn't, if you'd had that coffee in its original form, well, it would be like nothing. I mean, the roasting is basically what brings out the flavor. Chapter 4, he goes out and he thanks people who provided the water. 
Now, this is Tennessee. You guys got a lot of water here. You got good rivers and, you know, just other things, you know, Kentucky Lake and the Cumberland and all these things. Well, New York City, they've got good water supplies too. So Jacob goes up and takes a trip at the reservoirs that provide New York City its water. And New York City is known for having some of the best soft water in the world. They say that's why the bagels and the pizza crust and even the coffee taste better there. So he goes up and deals with the people that are in charge of the reservoirs. He says, thank you for guarding our water supply. And again, they're like, what a nut, you know, who, who would do this? And he said, he said, no, this is what this is about. He goes, oh, well, well, in that case, great. We're glad that you got good water. We're glad that we could help out with that. You know, by the way, a little side note. Um, if you're not thankful to God for water and you don't give thanks when it rains and things like that, shame on you. I've done a lot of preaching out in New Mexico and in West Texas. And let me tell you something, when you live in a desert area, you realize that water is a gift of God. And without it, life itself is not possible. I was doing a meeting at a little place in Memphis, Texas, years ago. It had not rained there in over 70 days. Things were just burning up, withering on the vine. And the last night of the gospel meeting, it started raining. And they had a building not dissimilar to this, wooden roof, the whole thing. But in the closing prayer, one of these brothers was up there in his Wranglers, and he had his cowboy boots and his Western, you know, George Strait, Garth Brooks shirt. And he was doing the closing prayer, and it started raining during the prayer. And he started crying during the prayer. And that was touching to me. I thought, this is a guy that gets it, okay? You know, oh, it's raining. I can't believe it rained. I just washed my car the other day. You need to be thankful, Bojambo, that it's raining, okay? Because rain, without rain, we're all in deep trouble. And Jacob's recognized the water. That's a, that's a blessing. Uh, number five, the safety patrol. I'm not sure that this one wasn't my favorite one. But the safety patrol, Jacob's is talking about the people that safeguard our food and our water and drink supply so we don't get poisoned to death. Some of you probably remember in junior high or high school reading a book by Upton Sinclair called The Jungle. And he was talking about the food uh, and meat packing industry in Chicago and all of the things that, well, if you read that thing, you didn't want to eat anymore because it was really disgusting. But he said the same thing was going on with coffee. In fact, there was a guy in England by the name of Arthur Hassel, and he studied the comings and goings of 34 coffee shops in the late 1800s in London. Now, this is what he discovered was going into Londoner's morning cup of coffee. Here were just a few of the ingredients. Almonds, asparagus seeds, baked horse liver, barley, beetroot, bran, bread crusts, brewery waste, brick dust, burnt rags, carrot, chickpeas, chicory, chrysanthemum seeds, coal ashes, cocoa shells, cranberries, currants, dandelion roots, date seeds, dirt, dog biscuits, elderberries, figs, gherkins, horse chestnuts, Jerusalem artichokes, cola nuts, lentils, malt, and mulberries. I'm pretty sure that the coffee that you and I had this morning didn't have any of those things in it. 
And that's because we've got a safety patrol that goes around the Department of Health, you know, the FDA, that makes sure that what we're getting in our food is actually food. You give thanks for that. A lot of places in, in world history, folks have died from being poisoned. We're really lucky to live at a time that that generally doesn't happen. So hooray for the safety patrol. Chapter 6, the movers. How's that coffee get to us? Well, how'd you think it gets to us? People move it. They put it on ships, and they put it on uh, the backs of burrows if they're up in the mountains, or they put it in trucks, and it gets here and it gets there. Well, that's kind of an amazing thing. The big thing that moves most things, I didn't realize this until I started reading the book, is almost everything that gets moved gets moved on pallets. Have you noticed those big wooden things? That's what they put it on. So he went and thanked the people that made the pallets and drove the trucks and, and piloted the ships. He said, thank you. They said, you're welcome. So number seven, the extractors. Where do we get those paper cups? Well, it comes from trees. It comes from wood. Well, how about the rubber for the truck tires? Well, you know, they have to go ahead and they have to... Gather that. The copper for the wiring and roasters, you name it, somebody is behind that. Again, that's one of the amazing developments, I guess, of a global economy, that all this stuff works in concert together. But it didn't stop Jacobs from seeking these people out and thanking them for doing their job and doing it very well. And finally, number eight, he thanked the farmers, the people that actually grow the stuff. Uh, you remember the mythical Juan Valdez? Juan Valdez in the mountains. Of, well, there was no Juan Valdez. He was kind of a fictitious character. And yet, there are a lot of coffee farmers around the world. That's Jacob's picking some of the, the coffee beans, the coffee cherries, as they were, on this guy's coffee farm in South America. And he says these guys face difficult, unpredictable circumstances. Sometimes the prices go up, sometimes the prices go down. Their costs remain uh, consistent. But he said so many of these farmers around the world, they work really hard for not a lot of money, and they face all kinds of risks and variables, and not many of them get rich. Now, I know that's a lot of detail, and I appreciate you bearing with me, but here's the point. Jacob's made an attempt, a good-faith attempt, to add up all the folks who had a hand somewhere in the process of getting that cup of coffee into his hand. And he came up with the nice round figure of a thousand. He said every morning when he put that cup of coffee in his hand, there were a thousand people standing behind that that were helping him to have something that he came to count on pretty regularly. And he said that might have been a low number. It could have been more than that. But he notes that this effect has had a, a, a transformative change on his life, just being grateful. He says, when I'm feeling grateful, I'm happier, and I'm more likely to think of others. I'm more likely to empathize, to volunteer, to donate money to good causes. When I'm cranky or depressed, I revert to my old selfish mindset. Well, my life is miserable, so why should I bother helping anyone else? We ever feel like that? Yeah. If we're honest, we'd probably say that we do. And how does that jibe with what the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus.
Here's the point. When we are conditioned to be grateful, when we're conditioned to notice people and to see what they're doing, we're going to see the good in our neighbor. And then it's going to be that much easier to love them as God commands. And here's a really important point I want to make as we close. Love can be commanded, and the Bible frequently commands it. You say, how do you command someone to love someone? Because love is not a mere feeling. It's an action. It's an attitude. It's something that you can do. Okay? It's not just this amorphous, uh, hard-to-describe feeling. So here's the question for us today. Who in your world has been adding something to your life without which you would be the poorer? Can you think of a thousand people? Well, maybe not. Can you think of a hundred, fifty, twenty, ten? I bet you can. I bet most of us have a favorite place we go to eat. Maybe a breakfast place, maybe a lunch place. Do you know the people? Do they know you? Probably. Have you gotten to know them? Have you thanked them for the work that they do? Do you tip them well? Josh, I've gotten in trouble preaching a sermon before on tipping. Um, one brother came up to me and said, you know, I don't mind your preaching so much, but he said, today, you just really crossed the line. I said, how's that? He said, well, you said you got to go tip. I said, you do, you cheapskate. Get a, get a crowbar, pry open your wallet, and tip those people. As my mother says, boy, if you can't afford to tip people, then don't go out to eat. And I thought, that, that's it. Well, do you know these people? Do you see them? Do you, do you pause and give them thanks for what they're doing? Here's something that I have noticed. When we give thanks for these people because they're created in God's image and they matter, and then, by the way, we notice that what they're doing, they're doing the very best they can with that, that's worth something. And when we're thankful for them, it's just one more step to loving them. And then when we give thanks and when we're grateful, something happens to us. We mentioned at the start, but it bears repeating, that study in Scientific American finds that gratitude, listen to it again, is the single best predictor of well-being and good relationships. Beating out all of those other impressive traits, such as hope and love and creativity. Because as Benedictine monk David Steinder Rass says, happiness does not lead to gratitude, Gratitude leads to happiness. And gratitude leads to us loving our neighbor. Show me someone who's grateful, and I'll show you someone who loves people. Show me someone who's not grateful, and I'll show you someone who is wrapped up in themselves, and they make a pretty small and miserable package. That's just the way that it is. That's the way God has worked the rules into the game. First of all, we need to be grateful to God. Because without God, we are nothing. What did the great Marshall Keeble say? He said, you think you're something? He said, you ain't nothing but a lump of dirt dressed up in a suit. <laughs> well, the Keeble knew. Everything we have, we have because of God. And so many of the things that God has given to us, he has given to us by using the work and the sweat of others. And we need to be thankful for those people. In just a minute, we're going to st stand and sing a song of invitation. I realize this maybe hasn't been the most evangelistic of sermons. 
And yet at the same time, I think that there's a thread in there that we can all seize. And here's the thread. Without God, we're nothing. Without other people, we're nothing. And that's something for which we need to give thanks. So maybe if you're in a place in your life that you haven't really been thankful and you've just been kind of off to yourself and defensive and, and dismissive of others, maybe it's time to let that go. Maybe it's time to say, Lord, give me forgiveness and help me to be that kind of loving person so that the truth of the gospel of Christ can shine through me. And of course, any time that there's someone that needs to obey the invitation and in faith, repentance, and baptism, all things are always ready for that. But if the invitation of Christ is calling to you in a special way today, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.